I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, You guys! Sometimes you're bad! Don't be jerks! You're supposed to be good! I'm in my office every day, and somebody comes in, and they're like, Hey, whoops! My like, don't! Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Hope. <laughs> I promise, Pastor Ben and I, and we're tag teaming today, uh, it's an honor, I promise we will not call you out by name in the sermon. But I feel like they've met Dan. You know, <laughs> I'm a little hard at that. You know Dan, too? Okay. If right. your name is Dan, we're not talking about you. <laughs> but that preacher sounds a little bit like Amos from our Bible reading for today. Maybe you already picked up on that. Amos is mincing no words. Remember, God speaks through his prophets. And sometimes through his prophets, God gives comfort to people who are, be, who are feeling afflicted. And sometimes, just as importantly, God brings a word of affliction to people who are getting too comfortable. And that's certainly the latter case with Amos. Do what is good, Amos sums it up in our Bible reading for today, and run from evil so that you may live. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on a remnant of his people. And Amos is naming names. He's going after Judah, he's going after Israel, he's going after all the surrounding nations, all the different groups of people. He's going after a few, uh, one guy by name, a priest later on in Amos chapter 7. He's naming names, he's coming after people, and he's proclaiming God's word because it's the word God gave him. He says later in this writing, in scripture, I'm not a professional prophet, I I'm a guy who just takes care of trees, fig trees, that's my deal. But God has given me this word and I have to proclaim it. I have to say it because the world's upside down. Thank goodness we don't live in an upside down world today. So we don't have to bring that kind of a word. Thank goodness everything in the world is just hunky-dory and perfect. And there aren't any messes to clean up at all. But God has a word for us. Isn't that actually refreshing? To know that God cares when we go upside down. That God wants to bring a corrective word wants to turn it right side up. And so that kind of sets the table for this series of sermons that we're all really excited to preach over the next several weeks called American Spirituality, Concerning Trends and Reasons for Hope. Because that's where Amos eventually gets to. There are reasons for hope, but there are definitely some concerning trends. Not just out there in the world either. It's not just, oh, the culture has shifted. It has. It's not just that the culture has made some some agreements with darkness, and is walking down that road with full force. We are. But it's also us. So let's start by turning the mirror around. Instead of a window to look through, a glass window to look through, let's turn that around and let it become a mirror. Because the church is making headlines these days for all the wrong reasons. 
scandals in the Roman Catholic Church, a massive split in the second largest Protestant church in America, the United Methodist Church, uh, megachurch pastors who've had really public moral failures and falls and, and abusive leadership styles. And, and instead of Jesus leading, it's really all about them. A church called Hillsong, which is this wonderful move of God for all these years. And then I guess they started to believe their own headlines. And they didn't think it was about Jesus so much anymore, but about them. And they tripped up. And now there's a whole like documentary series on discovery that you can watch and, and detail that. There's abuses of faith in the largest Protestant denomination in the country, the Southern Baptist Convention, and on and on and on it goes. And I want to make sure you know I'm not just talking about them. Amos says to them, to us, come back to God and live. I'm talking about us too. Here's one of the most disheartening screens on the next screen that I'm ever going to show you. It's baptized membership in the ELCA. That stands for Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. That's our denomination, the one that we're a part of. In, two, in 1988, when the ELCA started, there were 5.3 million of us who were ELCA Lutherans in America, the largest Lutheran denomination in this, in this country by far. Today, there's about 3.2 million. According to the ELCA, our very own denominational office of planning, research, and evaluation, by 2033, it'll be 1.8 million, and by 2050, less than a generation, just 28 years from now, there'll be 66,540 members left in the entire denomination if current trends continue. If current trends here at Lutheran Church of Hope continue, we'll be bigger than the whole rest of the denomination. But I don't mean that flippantly. I don't mean that like, aren't we great and aren't they terrible? I'm heartbroken. This is my family. This is my church. Three or four generations deep. And why? Why all the scandals in the Methodist church, the Baptist church, the Catholic church? Why the decline in the Lutheran church and the Methodist church and the Baptist church and Pentecostal churches and non-denominational churches and mega churches and tiny churches and medium-sized churches all around? Why the change over the last half a generation or so in this country? I think if we're going to be honest and we're going to let God's word challenge us, it goes right back into the first story that's told in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. It's original sin. It's refusing to accept our condition as a church and as individual members of Christian churches as being under God. We want to be God. We want to have the power. We want to have the control. We bite into the forbidden fruit, so when God comes looking for us because he cares about us, we say with Adam, I heard, I heard you, God, in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And we've wandered away and drifted away and gotten lost from the one thing that should always be the only thing that stands at the center of church and individual Christians within a church, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Everyone say the cross. The cross. Pastor Ben, tell us about all this. So when we think about the cross, it's not a fun thing. It's cross. Right? And when you read these words from Amos, it's hard to hear. You know, and if you have the same cultural, cultural touch points that I do, you have the same cultural references that I do, you think that when you read these words, like, it sounds like Frank Costanza, when he's, he creates his own uh, holiday 
called Festivus, right? And the way you start Festivus is through the airing of grievances. Amos sounds like he's airing his grievances. Like, I got a lot of problems with you people and you're going to hear about it. That's not what he's doing. Amos is tired. Like Mike was saying at the beginning, we live in a broken world. Are you tired? I know you're tired. I know you're tired of the injustice. You're tired of the struggles. You're tired of hearing bad news every time you turn on the TV. You're tired of the division. Aren't you tired? I love this poem by Langston Hughes. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Man, I relate to that. And I know from the times that you've been in my office that you are too. But I want you to know this is not the end of the poem. This is not the end of it for, it, for us. And this, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It continues. So let's take a knife and cut the world in two to see what worms are eating at the rind. So when you read these hard words from Amos, when you read things in the Bible and you're like, I don't know how to apply this to my life. How does this relate to me in the 21st century? This is written thousands of years ago. Does this really matter for us? I want you to see that it matters more now than it ever has. And I want you to see why. Because we can't sit and wait for the world to be good and beautiful and kind and we don't have to because of this. Because what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us, right? And so what we do, what we try to do to kind of make the world good and beautiful and kind is the way that we go off the rails when it comes to religion. You think about all those scandals, what you see is somebody of faith, a leader of faith, trying to make for themselves a name or trying to make for themselves a kingdom, trying to make for themselves purpose or, or pleasure, trying to make things okay. So all the human ways that it goes off the rails, we're going to talk about, okay? And the first one I want to point out to you is relativism. And maybe you know this term or not, but I'm going to define it for you and then I'm going to unpack it because it's, it looks like a lot of jargon, right? The relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exists in relation to the culture. And we know this, right? You were taught what's right and wrong by your parents. Everybody, and you had different parents than I do. So what your parents taught you about what's right and wrong is probably a little bit different. Society and historical context are not absolute. So what's true is true for you maybe. And what's true for me is maybe not true for you. right? But when we think about it this way, we can look at our culture where it's socially acceptable to wear a bikini on the beach. In other cultures, it's not. You know, we might eat meat. I love eating meat. And other people, my neighbor, for instance, is Hindu, and they eat vegetarian food. We look at other cultures across the world that have customs that maybe we would disagree with. But we have to figure out how to respect each other. This is what the good of relativism does, right? When sociologists uh, and anthropologists went and studied other cultures around the world, they tried to do so humbly, and they said, well, every culture needs to be respected, for the truth that it has and the good that it has. And so we're not going to be ethnocentric. And this is a really important thing and a right thing to do. But we took it too far. When we take it too far, we can't have 
a ground to stand on when it comes to criticizing things like Nazi Germany. You can't say all culture is relative and this is right for them and it doesn't mean it's right for me and then also see concentration camps. We have to be able to stand up against the things that aren't right. But the relativist shakes, you know, shakes his head. It has nothing to say. This worldview cannot call lies lies because everybody has their own truth and you don't have any right to criticize me and my worldview is this sustainable for us you see a lot of us we live with this kind of thing in our life maybe it's your sexuality maybe it is uh your your morality as far as your money we all have to ask the question am i believing a lie and i think we all need to come to the conclusion at some point yes I am wrong about something. Did you know that? I'm, I'm breaking it to you right now. You are wrong about something. You know what it feels like to be wrong? It feels exactly like being right. It feels exactly like being right. Everybody that's wrong, that doesn't know they're wrong, just thinks they're right. I'll let you think about that for a little bit. <laughs> but it feels the exact same. It's kind of like... Uh, Roadrunner and, and the wily coyote runs out off the cliff and he doesn't realize that he's no ground under him but he keeps running, right? But cultural relativism is all fun and games until it's not, right? Uh, I want to ask you these questions. If you're falling in this ditch of relativism, what you're finding yourself in is maybe a faith that's primarily about comforting yourself. Ask yourself, can I think of specific things that God thinks that grate on me that I don't like? Can I think of things that God wants that I don't want? Can I think of the ways that God acts that don't fit my thoughts, desires, and actions? And if we fall into this relativism thing, what we settle for is tolerance. And I want you to see that tolerance isn't the answer. Tolerance is the best the world has to give us, but tolerance is anemic. It sacrifices truth for the sake of love. And then the love itself ends up not being loving. It's not good for us. Amos is a word for us. How you hate honest judges. Right? I don't, don't judge me. Don't tell me how to live my life. How you despise people who tell the truth. This is this great on you. Maybe you're in the relativism ditch. Hate evil and love what is good, even if it challenges you. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. I want you to think about this. There's a, a, a saying, a, a quote that challenges us, right? And I, I want you to think about the way that you should apply this to your life. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. The people who are uh, in charge of morality have something to say to you. The law has something to say to you. Now, you're like, wait a minute, Pastor. I, I've read the Bible. Every single story that I've ever heard about a Pharisee has them as the bad guy. So why are you saying I should listen to Pharisees? I want you to see I'm not saying it. That's Jesus. Do you know Jesus said that? Oh. So, come on, now you're getting into legalism. Well, that's the other ditch. Right? When we think about legalism, I want you to think about Dwight Schrute. Right? 
So when we, um, when we fall into legalism, we end up just living to accuse other people. And if you, if you know the office, you know Dwight Schrute is right about everything. He's never been wrong in his life. And he always has opinions that other people need to hear. And he's the strongest and he's the smartest. He's the most capable. He's the most prepared of anybody that you ever met. Right? Except he's not. He is uh, the modern-day Pharisee in some ways, right? So Jesus' words continue, right? The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So you should practice and obey whatever they tell you. You should listen to the law. You should apply it to your life. But don't follow their example. The thing with legalism is we have lots of good rules that we like to apply to other people. I don't like to apply it to my own life. It, it, it It looks good on paper. But come on, it's a little bit hard to live out. And what happens is the law becomes a way of judgment, not justice. We don't practice what we teach. We don't preach. We preach one thing and then we do something else. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Are you falling into the legalism ditch? Amos has a word for you too. You trample the poor. Stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You've probably heard that before. Do you know it was from Amos? Are we going to be that way? Are we going to do that? Are we going to let justice roll down? I think if we're really honest about ourselves and we're not letting our really good religion go off the rails, I think that's what we're called to. So ask yourself these questions, and maybe it'll help you see if you're in the legalism ditch. Is my faith primarily about having the moral upper hand? Do I think of myself as morally superior to others? Does that keep me from seeing those people as God's children? Am I incapable of of empathizing with people that think differently than I do? God's challenging you in this. Right? So we have tolerance on one side, which is the best the world has to offer, but it's not really going to give us anything good. It's anemic. It's unable to challenge us to grow better. It says, you love you as you are. Don't change the thing. You're just perfect. That's just not true. And we have accusation on the other side, which is a cruel judgment that holds you to an account that the person that's pointing the finger at you doesn't themselves lift up. So what do we do instead? We listen for God's correction. God has something that's better for us. He offers a correction. And this is what the law is. The law corrects. But also the cross. The cross corrects. It changes for us the things we can't change for ourselves. The human answers to the problems of the world never, never come to fruition. They never really live out the way they should. So where tolerance wants us to know that we are right. You're right. Don't worry about it. You got it. Accusation wants you to know you're wrong. We want to tell you all the ways that you're wrong. Correction wants you to know that you are loved. And that things can be better. Tolerance makes us defensive. You know anybody that's defensive? Accusation makes us offensive. I know you know some people that are offensive. Correction makes us a balm of healing to people. Wouldn't you rather be that? That's who you're called to be. Tolerance excuses behavior. There's no really need to change. Accusation punishes. Focus on things you can't change and feel bad about yourself. 
Feel ashamed. Correction disciplines. It equips you to change the things you can change. Tolerance is easily offended. Accusation doesn't care about offending you. Correction is open to rebuke and speaks the truth in love. Tolerance pretends injustice is away. Accusation seeks justice in punishment. Trying to punish you is a way to bring justice. Correction seeks justice in restoration. Tolerance demands sameness. You have to think the way that I think. Change the way you think about diversity. Accusation demands division. I have no interest in what you think. Go pound sand. Correction makes space for unity. In our, go pound sand. You have a, uh, that wasn't in the script. I just did that in for you. Tolerance would never ask you to change. Stay the same. Accusation focuses on things you can't change. Correction equips you to change the things you can. Tolerance leads to hopelessness. Accusation leads to condemnation. Correction leads to hope. Are you going to let God correct you? Did you hear the song that we sang earlier? Something has to break. When you have your way, are you going to let God have his way in your life? Tolerance is the best the world can give. Accusation is the devil's name. Did you know Satan, more than a name is a title, Satan means accuser. When you're standing accusing somebody else that God loves, when you're coming at them with accusations, don't you know you're doing what the devil does? You think that person needs another devil in their life. Do you think they need another Satan in their life? No. Accusation is not the answer, but correction is what God is about. The Lord disciplines those he loves. So we see the world. It's unequal. It's broken. And there's things that aren't right in this world. And I want you to think of that red thread that runs through every single thing you do, every, th- every single way that we try to make the world right, whether it's a political solution or a social solution or a justice solution or a, a spirituality solution or an institutional solution or a do-your-own-thing solution, a freedom solution. Every human solution falls short. Every single one of them is tinged with sin. It's that lie that we believed at the beginning that Mike was pointing to in Genesis 3. Right? We have to realize that there's something more. We have to realize that there's a deeper truth. There's a deeper truth than we even realize. We have to let the truth speak. Right? And I want to challenge the way you think truth. You think you know what truth means. Truth means more than you even realize. You know truth, in its original definition in English, had more to do with troth as in betrothed than it had to do with intellectual assent to something that can be put in a test tube and tried and proven to be true. Troth is about faithfulness. It's about commitment. It's about covenant. It's about standing in God's presence and letting his love change us. You see, this is what, is, what we're called to. These are the things that are going to make this world right. So we see the inequality. We see the way this red thread of sin is woven through our lives. The way that it challenges us. The way that it holds us back from being who we're called to be. And there's no way that we can change the injustice. Because we think, ah, that person, they're the one that's holding me down. And all that I need to do is get 
Make sure that they get what's coming to them, and then things will be equal. But how many times have you seen that the oppressed become the oppressor? Almost every time. And what we see this red thread going through our lives, going through our world, and changing the way that we interact with each other, every solution that we can come up with actually makes it worse. But Christ gives us a different solution. He's the servant who's the king. He's the king who's the crucified. He's the one that comes to us in the cross and changes the reality of the world that we live in. He comes with a truth that sets us free by his resurrection. He comes with a truth that's deeper than death. He comes with a truth that will never be taken over by sin. He comes with a truth that the world can't touch and the darkness will never overcome. And he sends us into this world. He sends us equipped and called and challenged and corrected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pulls us into places where we're not comfortable. But he goes with us. God goes with us and calls us to the places where there's, where there's animosity, where there's injustice. He calls us to those places. But he calls us with a task. He calls us with an ability to change things for the better. He calls us so that we can point to others and we can help them see that they're not alone. You see, the world needs you, church. Religion has been a part of the problem, but religion in Christ, where Christ is the center, is the solution. It's the only way that we're ever going to lift people up. It's the only way that we can ever find a peace that, that is deeper than tolerance can offer. It's the only way that we can find a truth that doesn't become cruel accusation. Thanks, Pastor Ben. Now you know behind the beard is a brilliant theologian. In addition to tolerance and accusation that goes off the rails, the way we do church and the way we do Christianity can become so much about us, original sin, back to the garden again, that it becomes all about our style, or maybe even worse, and this one's a little bit more elusive, my knowledge. And I would even add into that in parentheses here, if I had space, my secret knowledge, or the secret knowledge that my church has, or my religion has, or, or, or my ability, like in a new age sort of spiritual way, throwing a, start to see uh, Christianity and my walk with God as sort of a salad bar, a buffet. I take some Christianity and I mix in some Zen Buddhism and, and some other Eastern philosophies and, and just some sort of worldly wisdom and, and put all this together, throwing some Oprah and Deepak Chopra and, and a bunch of other stuff and mix it all together and now I've got a better faith, right? You would if it was true. It's this truth that Ben just preached about, this betrothal, this love that God pours out for us on the cross. Everyone say the cross again. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But here's the hope. We're calling this series American Spirituality, Concerning Trends. Well, here's four big ones. Institutionalism, making it all about power and control and who's in charge of the church. I'm telling you, one of the greatest blessings of this church is the accountability we have built in at every level. There isn't one person. There's no individual. It's a board-led church. I have a board of directors I have to report to and I'm accountable to. And the whole staff's accountable to me, so behave. <laughs> and it's all built in. And you vote for the church council, not us at our annual meetings, and the budget is set by you. We're in that process again right now, the annual budget. 
Everything is set in that way. We don't have a system where one of us could go rogue or one of us could get a big head and start thinking, well, it's all about me and whatever I want to do. And my secret knowledge or my style or the way we're going to do these things, it's about Jesus. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's foolish to those who are headed for destruction. And we can head for destruction in all sorts of ways by making these things our religion. And that's bad religion. Concerning trends. Reasons for hope. The same reason there's always been. Ever since Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, the message doesn't change. It's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know you could hear that and be a little skeptical and say, yeah, but really, you want me to put my faith in a Jesus who died on a cross and rose from the dead? What about all the bad stuff religious people do? Shouldn't we just dismiss religion? You know, sing along with John Lennon, Lennon who I love. I love the Beatles. I love Lennon. Brilliant musician, but gosh, I wish he hadn't written this song. Imagine there's no heaven. No heaven above us, no hell below us. Imagine there's no religion. Ima okay, let's imagine that. What do you have left? People say, well, religion causes all the wars. Are you sure about that? There was a brilliant reporter who did his homework and had an interview with Richard Dawkins, the noted author and atheist. Richard Dawkins is probably a great scientist. I'm going to assume he is, but he's a C-minus theologian at best. And he got just the floor mopped up by this reporter who asked him some very kind of key questions. Take a look. Mao Zedong, when he invaded Tibet, told the Dalai Lama that religion is poison. The subtext to the late Christopher Hitchens' book was religion poisons everything. Can you blame people of religion for saying, hold on, We've heard these ideas before, that religion poisons everything, and it leads in one direction. It's an incidental fact that Mao Zedong and Stalin happened to be atheists. They incidental, were not it, wasn't, it wasn't core to communism. It, I, I think it was not core to communism, no. So when Karl Marx was talking about religion being the opiate of the masses, that was just a throwaway line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was um, uh, an out-of-context um, statement. I'm, I mean, what, what, what on earth do you think that's got to do with atheism? I don't know. Let me put a statement in context to you. Albania, one of the world's worst dictatorships, tyrannies that we've seen in the last hundred years. Article 37 of Albania's communist constitution declared, quote, the state recognizes no religion and supports atheistic propaganda in order to implant a scientific, materialistic world outlook in people. What do you think you're saying? I mean, that's an appalling thing to say. Of course it is. Why is that an appalling thing to say? What do you disagree with in that statement? Why would I want to support atheistic propaganda? I support science and truth. But you don't support spreading atheism? I support spreading science and truth. If that happens to be atheism, I, su I support it. So my question to you is, why not acknowledge, for example, the good things that religion has done? Do you accept that religion has done good things, despite all of our mad beliefs and our miracles? I accept that individual religious people have done an enormous number of good things. Not driven by religion? Well, I mean, who knows? You're very mean-spirited. You, you won't give any take, credit at all. Take somebody to like um, uh, Martin Luther King, for example. Reverend Martin Luther King. Yes. Um, <laughs> Obviously, he was a, he was a cleric, um, so, so um, 
I, I imagine that that fed into the good things that he did, plenty of other things did. He was a great admirer of Gandhi, uh, and um, he was a great admirer of nonviolence. He was a brilliant uh, and wonderful great man. Would you disconnect MLK's nonviolence and Gandhi's nonviolence from their very strongly held religious beliefs? They didn't. Well, um, I think that's it's not a thing that I re really care about, actually. I mean, I, I, I think you they were... You do care about it, Richard. You're saying that people men. carry out violence in the name of God. And I cite to you an example of very famous people who have done good and non-violence in the name of God, and you say, I'm not interested. <laughs> Is all religion really bad? No, that's not true. People who say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Be careful. You're slipping up here where it's really all about whatever you want to believe and God's going to send Amos and say what you're doing isn't good. Some religion, a lot of religion, in fact, is good. And according to the Encyclopedia of Wars, this three-volume historical work uh, by noted historians and, and researchers, less than 7% of wars in the history of planet Earth have been caused by religion. Did you know that? Less than 7%, 93 plus percent of wars have been caused by other motivations other than religion. Over the flip side of that same coin, Nobel Peace Prize winners in the history of the Nobel Peace Prize, over 80% are Christians. Less than 2% are atheists or agnostics. Who are the peacemakers? Who are the ones who are starting the wars? Who are the ones? Is all religion bad? Is religion really the reason? Imagine a world with no religion? Okay, let's imagine this country without religion in our history. The abolition of slavery would have taken a lot longer without Christians leading the charge. The women's right to vote in this country would have taken a lot longer if it weren't for Christians leading the charge. The civil rights movement of the 1960s, noted in that video, wouldn't have happened if it wouldn't have been for a Christian pastor who started the whole thing, Martin Luther King. You want a world without religion? You want a country without religion? Are you sure? Let's globalize it a little bit more. What would happen to all the beautiful Christian-inspired music, religious-inspired music, the art, the architecture, the philosophies, the hospitals? How many hospitals do you know of that weren't started by religion? There aren't very many. What about great academic institutions? What would be the state of our academic uh, status as a country if it weren't for Christians? Starting almost all the Ivy League schools, starting Cambridge, starting Oxford, starting all these kinds of places that lead the charge academically in the world. You want a world with, do we really, do we really want a world without religion? Do we really want, okay, let's imagine that. None of this stuff exists. It's all gone and so much more. So what does good religion look like? Because that doesn't mean all religion is good, just by definition. Good religion, pure and genuine religion, according to God's word, in the sight of God, the Father means caring for orphans and widows. Instead of thinking it's all about us and what we can get and getting comfortable and doing what we want, it's about us giving, serving, going out on mission. And it's also pure and genuine religion refusing to let the world, bing, 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 corrupt you and make your journey with the God who created you all about these things, about where we stand on the issues of our day. Because what could be more important than that? I know one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ, the foundation of our salvation. 
And so in scripture, it says we will preach Christ and him crucified. That will be our mission. That will be our identity as a church. We will follow Jesus who tells us there's way bigger fish for us to fry than just taking stands on the issues of our day and dividing over those things, dividing families, dividing congregations, dividing denominations, dividing up over these things. We will be a church after God's own heart. Imperfectly, absolutely. But hopefully always faithfully. Good religion centered in Christ. It's centered in love. God's love for us, and then that love fills us up and naturally pours out of us. It is full and giving and abundant in the life that it produces for us. A life of confident faith and hope and love and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't... Bad religion? Who doesn't want more of that? Good religion means people on a mission from God. We find our purpose and meaning as we care and reach out. Good religion knows that God's law not only has a place, but it's at the core of how we live because we're sinful human beings and we need to be corrected, as Pastor Ben said. We need to be corrected. Me too. All of us. God's law is this corrective that brings order to chaos, enhances our relationships, and helps us see our need for a Savior. So we'll end where we started. Back to Amos 5. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. But get this part. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on a remnant of his people. A group. A remainder. Even if the rest of the world, even if it becomes the trendiest thing in the world for churches to run. And they are. And that's why we're in free fall decline. That we run in these four directions or one or two or three of these four directions. Even if that's what everybody else is doing, we aren't going. We will stay right here, centered in the cross of Jesus Christ. We will continue to preach Christ and him crucified. It doesn't make us better than anybody else. It's just that we want to be what God has made us to be. It comes from him, not us. He's the giver of this gift. So as a church, as Christians, within a church, not just when you're here, but when you and I, when we go out there, let's be a remnant. Let's be faithful. Let's keep the faith. That's just part one. Wait until you see the next four. We got a series here. Invite your friends. Let's stand up and give God praise as we close this service. Thanks, Pastor Ben. Thanks, Mike.